Welcome to another episode of Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And let me tell you something right now. Today's show is going to be historic. For one, I'm in a city that has an incredible history, as well as some of the best lemon pepper wings in the country, some of the finest strip clubs. Of course, I'm talking about Atlanta. And because I'm here, there is no way I was going to leave this city without talking to today's guest, who is one of the best thinkers, lyricists, and best shit talkers in the game. I'm talking about Killer Mike. He's not just a rapper, he's a life coach. So prepare to be educated. So one of the reasons I wanted to do a podcast is because it was going to give me the unique opportunity to sit down with interesting people in really intimate environments and kind of learn what makes them tick. My next guest is one of the most compelling people in all of entertainment. And one of the things I love about this guest is he's one of the few artists whose opinions and outlook on life I love as much as his music. Um, I'm pleased to be joined by hip hop artist, entrepreneur, activist, critical thinker, Killer Mike. Now, before we get into our conversation about Mike's Netflix show, Trigger Warning, uh, this upcoming documentary he's in about weed, uh, which, of course, will be released on 420, which also happens to be his birthday talk about simpatico and also talk a little bit about his music i want you all to hear what killer mike said at a vigil that was held in atlanta for nipsey hustle uh, because it certainly gave me the chills we have a choice we don't have to be nobody's motherfucking savages we ain't got to be the examples of the wrong way we ain't got to be no thugs that are thrown away we have a choice that rag that is over your forehead or out of your left pocket is better served wiping the sweat off your head for the work you are doing on the behalf of your community in a way that does not murder other africans you do not have to kill one another to prove your love to your neighborhood you can uplift one another the first of all is individuals, second of all is a small group of friends, third of all as a neighborhood and as a greater community. Your enemies don't give a fuck what color rag you wear. They will murder you in the streets, they will leave you dead for your mama to find, and I'm tired of my enemy looking like me. I am tired of my enemy being looking like, he can look like my cousin or my brother. So I wish I had an organ in front of me, Killer Mike, because you were <laughs> you were preaching uh, when you said that at the vigil uh, for Nipsey Hussle um, here in Atlanta. I'm tired of my enemy looking like me. Why do you think his death resonated with so many people? He worked so hard to become who he was. You know, like you got certain MCs that could be accepted as face value as the handsome guy, the street guy, the slick guy, the player. And for for that person, like many others before and will be after him, chooses a path not only of that stuff that's sexy and that sells, one of social consciousness and tries to edutain at the same time they're entertaining. That's just it's special. And people had really started to give him his just due. His flower was just blossoming and opening. You know what I mean? If you look at the pictures from the Rock Nation luncheon with J&B, you could see him leveling up. So it was like his cheerleaders that had been along for the whole ride were really enthusiastic. So if you imagine sports team analogies, it's like seeing your team go up in the brackets over the years and all of a sudden they get the big shot and the worst occurs, you know? And that's why I think, and it galvanized people because, you know, at this point, knowing some, knowing gang members since 1987, Older gang members are in their 50s and 60s now. And these men realize the mistakes of their past, and a lot of them are trying to rectify them through social programs, through supporting people like Nipsey. He really had began to become a change unit in his community. And these older guys and younger people all galvanized around him and were galvanized. They saw him go from selling socks in front of a store to owning a store, from renting that store to owning the plaza. And to see that cut down, you know, for, for, for hatred and emotion and a moment in jealousy, it just cut people deep because everyone knows a Nipsey. Everyone knows someone who, who was aspiring to be more, inspire others that got cut down before their time. Yeah, so I wrote a column about Nipsey for The Atlantic, and I think his death also gave us another entry point to have a conversation about violence in our community. Now, I definitely don't want to be one of these people that's on that black-on-black crime shit because we know that is, yeah. that's a, it's a proximity crime. So yeah, it's absolutely. about people who, who live close to, who one, live close to yeah. one another. That being said, 15,000 Americans were murdered in 2017. 51% of them, of the victims rather, were black. And black people in Los Angeles make up just 8% of the population, but are 36% of the homicide victims. Yeah. So 
I guess I'm struggling to understand. I mean, America's violent overall, yeah. but in our community, this is such a staggering problem. And I'm wondering what is it going to take for this, for those statistics to not look like that? Well, let's credit that over the last 30 years, statistics have fallen. Over the last 30 years, black people, in, in particular gang-infested areas, have become better at not killing one another. So it always is wrong and it always feels wrong. But your children can wear the Jordans that I'm wearing on my feet on a bus now. Mm. And I was in high school 25 years ago. You couldn't do that. Yeah, same here. <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. So just that small example shows you we are less violent as a community. But the problem is joblessness persists. Issues of the black man in particular not being able to find proper work to actually head family um, lead to children left to their own devices. You have young men who should be organized in things like boxing, hunting, fishing, and shooting, Boy Scouts, whatever our, our brown version of those things are, who not. And they're, le and they're left in an environment where they're, they're jobless. They aren't being taught trades and skills in schools. They're only test-taking centers. And boys have a need to be tribal boys have a need to to get that out and if we're not providing them that then the after effect is us leaving an ignored population of children to their own devices without that are jobless hopeless men frederick Douglass said it's easier to build strong children than it is repair broken men mm. we have because of things like the drug war broken men that are going into and out of a system we have men that are not raised in the company of men in which they're taught to use logic to overcome their emotions so you get senseless violence and murders based on pride and ego brother steps on your shoe y'all have a disagreement with one another he feels like he big time because over the summer he came up you shouldn't be murdering him you should go home and figure out yourself out about next summer get your own weight up you know what i'm saying as a community left our own devices, I have to congratulate us on how far we've come. Yeah, I mean, and even though the violence has dropped, though, what's staggering is when you look at the wealth income gap between yeah. us yeah. and white America. Yeah. It is, uh, I remember when uh, the Boston Globe, they did a, a series about the wealth gap just in Boston. And yeah. the average black family, I think they said, was worth in terms of assets and all yeah. that, like $8. Yeah. Like, and I was like, that wasn't a misprint. It was like $8. And yeah. so if these other things are, are dropping, why is that part still the same? It looks almost worse than it did. It certainly has gotten worse since the 50s and 60s when more of us were, were gainfully employed just as a community. Well, I mean, you know, I did a TV show called Trigger Warning. Oh, no, and, we're going to talk about Trigger Warning, first, trust me. the first episode, I try to live black. Mm -hmm. And the fact that that was incredibly difficult and even a place like Atlanta is a very telltale sign. I was raised by my grandparents. So I wasn't raised, my parents um, were born in 1955, 1959. So I wasn't raised by baby boomers. You know, I was raised by World War II people. I was raised by old people. And, <laughs> You know, old people know that the world's not very forgiving, so they don't really put a lot of cut or sugar on it. They just kind of give it to you like it is. And, you know, my grandfather would say, you know, you were better off before desegregation. I'm just like, what? Like, oh, man, you light skin. You tripping. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. And he didn't mean that the condition of Jim Crow or the apartheid of segregation was better. What he meant was as a community, we were forced to deal with one another. So doctors, dentists, your haircut, where you got your haircut, where you bought your groceries. All of these were black affiliated in a way that kept our dollar in our community longer. Um, it's increasingly difficult to do these things if we aren't funding ourselves. Just like in you look at a place like Los Angeles, I love to go to K-Town. My Korean friends take me there. I shop. I use my dollar there. It's a dollar in there in that space of Korean businesses, which are if you like Papa Do's, they have a Korean version of Papa Do's. If you like Baskin Robbins, they have a Korean version of that. So, but all that dollar turns in the community longer. That dollar strengthens that community. Asians keep dollars in their community 28 days. We keep a dollar in our community six hours. So we're fighting for something that's not even there, but we can have it. We can start to repair the wealth gap. Now, I don't know if we're ever going to get things like reparations. I don't know if we're going to get government incentives from a federal level that we deserve. We never got a chance to take advantage of things like home ownership in terms of being given low interest or no interest loans. We never were given what Dr. King was asking for in his last days, land grants or land entitlements. and stuff. We don't. But what we do have, we can maneuver and pivot from. And what we have now is a firm fix on intellectual property and entertainment in this in this country. So if what we do is run and shoot a ball, and if what we do is sing and dance is very well, it's time to stop criticizing the people who do that. And it's time to start marrying them with the financial class that can take the resources they have after they retire and become the business class in our community. 
So you're never going to stop McDonald's or Starbucks or, or say, Dunkin' Donuts. You're not going to stop those. Those companies are going to trajectory to keep growing. That's what they've done in the last 50, 60, 100 years. What you can do is make sure that 15 Starbucks in your city are owned by a guy who played for the Hawks. And that will employ 150 or so people who look like you. You pay them a fair salary, those 150 people go on to live normal, stable lives, create normal, stable children, create a school system that produces educators, inventors, and thinkers, and the process repeats itself and grows. That's what we can do in the immediate. And the very immediate thing, you can take part of your dollars and shift them to a black bank, um, like Citizens Trust, who has a 90-year stellar record, is led by a black woman. You put your dollars into that bank, that bank can now put out better loans and more loans to people that are black and non-black. Those loans go to fund the next wave of loans that can come. We can do that. That makes sense. Black people eat more seafood than any other people. Right. Then you can find black seafood restaurants to support that are going to hire black staff. There are things we can do, and you can't say, well, you got to wait on these other things to happen. Like, I'd like for the government to pay us with those. I'd like for these other things to happen. I think one day it's going to happen. But in the meantime, and in between time, I need you to start a business. I need you to go buy Dave Ramsey's book, If You're Really Black, go buy that white man book, and start to live by the principles. You know, I sat with a billionaire two weeks ago. And he's a billionaire. And he says, you know, I tell my players, you know, you don't need a Lamborghini yet. I, I could buy four now and I don't. But just trust me, save your money so that when you retire, you're going to have this amount of money and then take this money. And you should be partnering with these major corporations that are already doing this with, with the, my financial advisors. You shouldn't be running to your homie who just got a, you know, get your homie a, a, a job in the office. But I want to invest with whoever Warren's Buffett is. About. Who's, who's his father? I'm with him. I'm with Mr. <laughs> right. Buffett right. with my measly $30 million. Here I am, Mr. Buffett. I love that you just called 30 million measly, but that's OK. But, but at the, I mean, when you when you look at what Sierra woke up to, boy, that ain't no money. You know? <laughs> well, Russ <laughs> you know, got 65 oh, guaranteed, man, God bless their family. I'm because telling you. <laughs> he, Ru Russell, ideally, what I would like to see is them come back to Atlanta after retirement and he'd be the next wave of ownership of whatever black people and white people and everybody likes to buy. So, you know, I don't have a problem with Red Lobster. You know what I mean? I don't have a problem supporting my Aunt Frida restaurant. I think I can do both in a week. But it helped to know that the Red Lobster is owned by Josh Smith. Right. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. No, so, I get it. And I think so. I think there are economic things we could do to start to thwart it off. But we have to start thinking that we're our grandparents. Like me and my wife had to have that discussion. You know, I like fast cars. I like jewelry. I like all the cool rapper stuff. But at a certain point, I've had all I can have. What I have is enough for me. I have to think about my youngest daughter, Mikey's children. And I have to make sure that they're going to be left with something. Because I not only want to take care of my wife and me in retirement, I want to make sure our grandchildren have a head start. And I think all of us could do that individually. And while we're doing that, we can find black banks to support, black businesses to support, and businesses that are associated with black people to support. Well, I'm glad uh, you brought all that up because that's an easy segue to talk about trigger warning. Because yeah. for those who haven't seen it, it's uh, Mike's series on Netflix. I've seen every episode. It's a rare combination because it's education, entertainment, and also you learn some things. Yeah, you know I what hope, I mean? I, uh, I really think you should expand on the whole porn teaching you how to do something. Yeah, that, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah one episode where, uh, you know, if you put something that is educational and wrap it around some entertainment, they will be more likely to consume it. And in this case, Mike found out that people are more likely to learn how to fix shit if it's wrapped around sex. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> sex so, is, people act like <laughs> sex is... Uh, uh, it's the most motivating factor in the world. Our, your primal urge to procreate, to reproduce, and the tingly feelings you get around that, there's <laughs> right. no greater urge. I was like, so, I think that it's, it's for the pleasure. I can't say it's always for the pro procreation. Yeah, I mean, I, you've given the pleasure, so you have an incentive to procreate. That's this the way nature true. works. You this know what I mean? True. I think. Yeah. You know, at least those little dogs that are air humping teddy bears <laughs> on the internet everywhere I look. I'm like, why did they have little Charlie's balls clipped off? You know? But Trigger Morning was really some revolutionary television. Tell me how it came about. It's been 10 years in the works. I mean, it came about because at 12, 15, 18, 19, these thoughts just pop in my head. Like, again, since I was like 87, 88, when Crips first got to Atlanta, my friends have been, you know, many of them have been associated with street fraternities, including not limited to Crips, gangster disciples, vice lords. And my thing was I saw these brilliant, beautiful black men that are my friends who just had the greatest minds. I was at the Erica Badu and Nas concert, and one of them who had did in the 90s a couple years for check fraud, was one of the most brilliant young men. I, of course, he was doing check fraud. He was smart enough. We were just selling crack. He's a cameraman now and does audiovisual productions with this. And I'm just like, wow, <clears throat> he reached his potential and more. But what if he hadn't been given the opportunity to? 
You know, what if he had gotten 30 years? What if he had gotten murdered, killed? So my thing was to how do I help the world see what I see in these people? So with the Crip episode, I just said it's been in forever. Like, I see white people celebrating crime all the time. I eat at Godfather Pizza. <laughs> Why can I not have a Crip Cola? You know, Crip Cola been in my mind since I was 15. And so I found young brothers who, who are members of the street fraternity who I think are innovators, one of which has his own company, Cash Crop Clothing, Yale. He's already a businessman, was a shoe flipper. When I met him, I said, hey, guys, you would like to try this out? Let's give it a shot. And they did. And I think that there's always Chomsky talks about there being a, another way. So we get given these polarized things. You're either good or bad. You know what I mean? But there's a whole middle ground, right, in between that that we never explore and we could. So if you look at Sons of Anarchy, one of my favorite shows, I'm celebrating criminality. Boardwalk Empire, you're one of my favorite shows, celebrating criminality. I love Game of Thrones, so yeah, I guess I'm sort of celebrating incest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> criminality, incest, the capitalist system, wrong, right, grease, I, everything that messed us up. You know what I mean? So. My thing was, why can't I bring that? With that episode, I wanted to do that around not only sexuality and teaching, but around sexuality, homosexuality. As I was given this game by the, by the woman who, um, who was a sex counselor in that, even I can expand my mind. So like, I didn't think, well, I'll fix a lock. I better use two guys. <laughs> I never even thought it. I just would use chicks in every, every, every episode. But I had to learn to outgrow my isms and phobias and, and my perception. And that's what I want to push and trigger people to do. Just think to have outside conversations and to think in new or progressive ways. I woke up and the first article I saw this morning was there's a city that's using homeless people to clean up trash. And I think there's a, a living or, or pay incentive. That's genius to me, right? That, that it's genius that you give people the dignity of, of having to say, I do this. This is my work. And you give them or subsidize their living and pay and give them an opportunity to not only restore their dignity on a daily basis, but become a functional member of society again. I wish to see more of that in our society. And the only way you do that is try wildly radical shit. <laughs> well, I, it was definitely wildly radical to tell a bunch of kids that their dreams ain't shit. <laughs> yeah, your dreams ain't shit. Your dreams Let me tell you something. Shit. Let me tell you something about your little punk ass dreams. <laughs> As you did, and you know I think that I mean? was the second episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, when you, most of the time your kids come up to you and they say, you know, I've, I I want to be Trey Young. And you're like, yeah, we're going to buy you some shoes. We're going to get you a basketball. You know what I'm saying? My grandparents would say, well, your ass better practice because you're chubby and you're slow. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know exactly. I mean? So that didn't mean I couldn't be Trey. It just means I had to be able to work as hard as Cameron Dollar. Right. So people who don't know who Cameron Dollar is, Cameron Dollar's a 1995 um, NCAA champion, UCLA. Yes, yeah, he was yeah. coming off the bench. I think was it Tyus Edney who was the yep, point Tyus where Eddie. Tyus had got hurt. So Cam came in. All right, so people didn't know what to expect out of Cam. I knew they were going to win. Cam was a dog. Yeah. Cam was a dog when he was in third grade and we fought. Cam was a dog when we <laughs> argued in the sixth grade. <laughs> you fought Cam? Cam? You fought Cam? Yes, that's my, I love Cam. Okay. Because Cam. Did you win? Absolutely. Come on, this is me. Now, he played basketball, but I had no hands, though. <laughs> no, 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 but. He's a coach now. His father was a coach. His brother Chad is a coach. I grew up around Cam, seeing him at 10, wanted to be great. Ugly but effective. So yeah. if you have grandparents who were that wise, yeah. you seem like you the type that always had a really good head on his shoulder. How did you wind up selling drugs? Because uh, you're not stupid. What do you mean? I can go to Burger King. I could take at that point what five fifteen an hour minimum wage. I can work. You overwork me because I'm a kid. I don't even realize what overtime is. You overworking me at the end of this. I got one hundred twenty three dollars after I cash my check and taxes come out and I give my check to my grandmother. She gave me twenty three dollars back and keep a hundred. Man, you crazy. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like I'm gonna still keep the job because I don't want to irk my grandmother. But I'll be damned if I'm not gonna get a fifty slab and two chains that thing. Like I'm not crazy. So <laughs> to me, if you ever watch the movie Fresh, kids are into Intelligent. Kid ain't stupid. Go watch that movie. Check it out. I was smart enough to know my aunt lives in Allen Temple. I'm relatively safe. It's going to take me about this amount of time to get off 10 of these. I get $10 per. That's $100 back. I've invested 50 bucks. That's the extra 50 bucks. Now I have $73. Now I can go to the skating rink and I can, you know, I can, I can, I can buy girls some popcorn and we can dance. And my grandmother keeps that hundred dollars and she keeps in a saving account for me. But I never have to argue with her about the money again. You know what I'm saying? So I'm, I was intelligent is how I ended up doing it. I saw the environment around me. That doesn't mean I was smart. Just means I was intelligent enough to know how to make some money. Now it was dumb to do that because I put myself at risk and peril. You know, of going to jail, of dying, you know, things of that nature. But I was intelligent. You know, if you if you leave a dog in this room long enough, it'll fiddle with the handle till it learns how to. Now, you know, it might not know what's on the other side, so it might not be the smartest thing. But I was intelligent enough to know I can take this amount of money 
And because I'm a kid, I can ride the bus to my other grandmother's or my cousin's neighborhood, and I can do this. I had no illusions of being Scarface. Mm. You know what I mean? I had no illusions of trying to be, you know, a kingpin. It was just a means to an end for me for, for that. You know what I mean? If I needed some rims, I did what I had to do. But you know, then I realized in the middle of buying rims, I don't need to buy rims. I need to buy music equipment. All my homies that are buying rims are getting 20-year sentences. All my partners that got gold in their mouth, they getting 12 and 20-year sentences. So when everybody went to jail, 95, 96, when the Olympics came, I got my gold teeth out my mouth. I put no rims on my cutlass. I just put, I, I ain't put white walls. I think I had rallies on that thing. You know what I mean? But I did everything I could to say as inconspicuous as possible. I kept a job because, again, I didn't want to disappoint my grandmother. So I always kept, I liked cars. I worked at AutoZone in advance for four hours. Now, the next 12 hours of the day, I got to the money. But my grandmother was not going to know. She wasn't going to have to bond me out. You know what I'm saying? So that was my thing. I was intelligent. But that was a dumb move that a lot of us made in the 80s and 90s because we didn't really realize what, how we were hurting our community. We didn't realize we were robbing ourselves of empathy because when you start treating people like fiends or junkies, it robs you of your own humanity. You know what I'm saying? I didn't realize I got older and I realized those things. You know what I mean? And I've tried to make amends and I, I make amends by the work I do in the community, but just like every other punk kid in the 80s and 90s. You just figured out a hustle and you tried it. Uh, so you always had an exit strategy, which seems to be a very unusual approach that what most people who slang had, they think they're going to do it forever, Yeah, right? And But you seem to have an exit strategy well, from the beginning. Well, I wasn't stupid. Like, I added up, you know, my family is from Tuskegee, Alabama. You know, my father's family is from Georgia. My, my mother's family is from Alabama. My father, for a short time, had been an Atlanta City police officer. So the police I encountered, a lot of them had known my father. My cousins, um, I have two cousins, one younger that's currently an Atlanta City police officer, another cousin that's older is at East Point. So it's like I had law enforcement in my family, had a lot of male role models in my family, uncles, cousins. So I was never under the illusion it could work. You know, men tend to be very truthful with you. Like, yeah, I tried it. I went and did three years in jail. You want to go to jail, kiss boys? Like, and you like, hold up, hold up, hold up. I didn't. I don't even like boys, huh? You know, did you kiss boys? Like, you know what I'm saying? But they give you the pure. Like, this is what happens if you do this, and and you left with a decision. Like, is it really worth 12 years of my life? Like, nah, I don't. You know, I don't want to get a boyfriend just cause. I want to really love him. Because <laughs> you know you're mean? sweet, you're sweet, of course. Like you know I, mean? I just, I got that from you that you were a hopeless romantic. Um, we're gonna continue this conversation uh, with Killer Mike, uh, so we'll see y'all after the break. <laughs> Absolutely. Right, we're uh, still kicking it here with uh, Killer Mike, who is. I, I swear, you should have been a financial advisor. Like, no, I'm I had serious, to man. The hard way. I had to mess up money. I okay. had to lose. I had to look at my wife like, damn. <laughs> well, you you credit her. You you brought yeah. up your wife. You uh, I think you called it marrying her the best business decision you ever made. Absolutely. Yeah. Why'd Absolutely. you say that? I mean, oh man, she's incredibly hot. So I wanted her for all the superficial reasons first. That's important. I was like, man, you got great eyes, man. You got boobs. I didn't even <laughs> realize she had a butt. I was just like. <laughs> little way I was like she's younger than me I was like oh yeah this is winning and then I talked to her more and more and more and I'm just like your grandmother did run the liquor house you're intelligent intelligent like you get it and I started to follow you know as a man as an alpha as a leader as a southern man you get told to lead lead but I saw my grandparents have this relationship and one in which my grandmother was a college graduate and a nurse my grandfather dropped out of school in the third grade to make sure his sisters could stay in school and had a better life than he did you know functionally illiterate you know what I mean could count could count money from front and back but he trusted my grandmother's intuition and instinct on things and he trusted her in matters of money and I wanted to have the same type of relationship with my wife. And my wife is an intelligent woman. And I just gave myself to the process. You know, if, if you read, and I'm not, I'm not of a religion, but a beautiful scripture is Proverbs, you know, 10 through 31, where it talks about the type of woman or wife you want to have. A wife who saves, a wife who conserves, a wife who takes the best of things and hides them away, things of that nature. Like, I, I have that type of woman. I have a woman that thinks 10, 15, 20 years in the head, and I'd be a fool not to follow her. You're crazy. Mm -hmm. You know, the goddess of victory, not Nike is a woman, not a man. Yep. That's you know, why so. Phil Knight named the a company absolutely. after a absolutely. Nike. Absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely. exactly right. Absolutely. So I'm getting married in November. You got any advice for me? Yeah. Um, the advice we were just given by my little sis, Smiley, her dad, Mr. Sheets, God bless his soul. I said, you got any advice for me? Because me and Shane will fight like 15 times a day, like in a good way, but just like a sports debate fight. 
Compromise, compromise, compromise. Communication and compromise is key. Whether we like it or not, whether it feels good or not, Shana and I are constantly communicative. You know, we're constantly, except for the first two hours she's awake in the morning when I be trying to go live <laughs> and she hit my phone and mad at me, right? But we right. talk a lot about what's right and wrong. More what's right, right? In terms of this is what we like, this is what we're doing, these are our goals. But the stuff that's uncomfortable, whether it's been a day or years, it sits on us, it eventually comes out and you have to sit and be open to it and listen and you have to compromise with one another. You have to be open to it and you have to support one another in your endeavors. Yeah. And, and, and you should be compromising with the person you're going to spend the rest of your life with because you know, men usually die early, and if I'm laying there on the bed, I don't want to My fiance tells me that all yeah, the time. He was like, you know women kill us. I was like, yeah. that is not true. I don't think y'all kill us, but I don't want to be I don't want to be laying on the bed and I'd have made you tell me, that nigga cheated on me back in, <laughs> not, back in 89. I don't know, like, I don't I don't know how people yeah. can do that. Yeah, like, I, yeah I, I, I firmly believe in that principle of not going to bed angry, because yeah. it just feels too weird, because I consider sleeping with somebody, and I don't mean sex, but just generally sleeping with somebody to be one of the most intimate things you can do with somebody. And you definitely don't want somebody on the other side of that bed who might want to stab you in your sleep, yeah, right? Yeah. So you got to make sure that everything is... And um, if you do mess up and go to bed angry, you know, wake up and make up the next morning. Right. You you talk so much about, you know, financial freedom, um, financial independence. And I noticed not just you, but 21 Savage, yeah. Jay-Z, uh, Nipsey, so many rappers now, uh, 2 chains, are on that financial freedom message. What has changed... Like, where is this coming from? What has changed in hip-hop, boy? This is, it used to, you know, everybody, and not that this still doesn't happen, used to be rapping about, like, spending money yeah. like it ain't never running yeah, out. Yeah. And now all that has changed. Is yeah. it just because still our prominent rappers are of a mature age now? Or yeah, that, well, I mean, what is you know, it? rap's only 40-something years old. Blacks have been free of apartheid, you know, Jim Crowism, 55 years now. So we're not a free people very long. You know, we still, spending money gives you a high, gives you a rush, you know, and it's a, who doesn't indulge in fantasy, right? So rap went through the years of fantasy, but rap has always been grounded. KRS once said a lot of the same things we're saying, you know, Easy e lived it. You know, when I say that my first example of getting money, becoming a businessman, Luther Campbell, Easy e Tony Draper, Jay Prince. All of which became millionaires. All of which were millionaires or doing well when they died. All of which. Like, you know, I like the NWA movie, but Bone Thugs was the biggest thing in the world. Mm. Easy one heard like that. Right. You know what right. I'm saying? Like, right. you know what I mean? Like, yeah. ooh, like, man, when yeah. Bone Thugs came, it was just like, easy, bang. You know what I'm saying? The curl got wetter, the glasses got loped, you know? So it's like, and, and that's just because I'm an easy fan. I just wanted to get that out there, man. Yeah. But I've seen black men make money and, and give other people opportunities to make money. Like Coach said, you know, coaches help make millionaires. I saw Dame and Jay and Kareem help make millionaires. So the mentality's been there. I think the mentality's come to the forefront because the mentorship has gotten better. Jay is mentoring a generation. Puff is mentoring a generation. You know, and, and, and hence the people who who seen them make moves and emulate that. 21 Savage is mentoring the generation. You know, the T, I think it's TMD or TME. It's a label here that helps do Citizens Trust kids start savings accounts. They're mentoring the generation. And I've been mentored. I've been helped to understand my mistakes past financially. I've married a woman with strong mind. I buy the Dave Ramsey books and read them. You know, I've been mentored. And they're like right now, I'm, in, I'm being mentored by a very affluent man who is not black. That's why I encourage people to make people and make friends who don't look like you, who are not from your background, who culturally are not like you, because you're going to learn things that can help you. You know what I'm saying? So this white billionaire guy says, man, I like what you and your wife are doing. You know, seems like some, let me offer you some advice and mentorship. All right, so what's the advice you get? Get money quick, baby. Well, you got to save 30 cents out of every dollar you make. Hold up. Oh, <laughs> you were like, come on now. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I want a Ferrari. So I'm laying, I'm telling myself, working out like, I'm going to fit in a Ferrari. <laughs> I can't buy a Ferrari. I got to get a little grayer before I buy my Ferrari. I just do it the regular way, you know? So I think mentorship has gotten better in, in terms of us being mentored by people from other cultures. Elijah Muhammad said that. Study other successful cultures. You don't just hate white people. You study what's been successful. You use and emulate it, right? The mentorship within the fraternity of hip hop has gotten better, right? So it is not just stunt on you culture. You know, in the streets, they say, I got the bigger chains. And that's that's cool for the talk. But when we see Jay-Z make a move, we're being mentored. When we see Puff make a move, we're being mentored. And we follow that. And we, we lean toward that. So I think that that's part of it. And then, yeah, we're, we're, we're growing up. 
Yeah. You know, one of the most astute businessmen in the game has been Cameron. And, you know, as, as funny and as wild as Cam is, as dope as his lyrics, like I salute and follow and love Cam because his business mind is incredible. You know what I'm saying? He was mentored by Dane. You know what I mean? You got to at some point start to say and see that that's that's important. So, yeah, the unfortunate part is being a journalist, you know, that automatically means you're not good at math. So, <laughs> so unfortunately, all I got is this, this conversation and these words. I'm going to try to I'm going to try to hustle those. Yep. But that is why I started a production company. And, and it's it, it was a great observation you made about that mentorship, because I feel like LeBron is doing the same thing. He is mentoring a new him. generation of athletes who are thinking about. About themselves and, and let's, differently and let's do the mentorship line Let, let's look at magic yeah and what magic right. was able to say just bring in my community starbucks was owned by magic the theater was owned by magic you you got pride in going because you knew magic johnson and now you look at 20 years later magic johnson bought the dodgers you know you look at um shack and his being able to not only broker say hey i'm shack you can pay me to be on a commercial but yeah i'm shack gonna be on commercial shack probably gonna own 100 of papa john's after you know bringing papa john's and you got to say to yourself like wow rick ross Rick Ross, so I don't care how you feel about Rose, how you feel about his raps or his. I don't even. The fact that that man owns and employed owns restaurants, Wingstop, wing stops, right? yep. wing stops, and, and those, rallies, and those lemon pepper wings yep. are fire, fire, fire. And he employs <laughs> yeah. the the kids that looked like him that 20, 30 years ago would have been doing drugs and crime and debauchery. That's that that's that's mentorship. Someone guided him, and you know. And I love the fact that two chains. You know, like Tid is one. He is an intelligent brother. He's been that since he was on DTP. And the fact that I get to see him in the real world exercise the lessons he's learned from Chaka. He's learned from, because you know, even if someone just says, do this, do this, do this, you learn just by being in the environment. Big Boy from Outcast has allowed me to be around so much business talk that it grew me up. It grew me up early. He's one of the most astute businessmen I've known. T.I., another one, who who willfully shares knowledge. So for me, man, that mentorship and that iron sharpening iron, that exchanging information as brothers, that's what, and sisters, that's what that's what it's all about for me. Yeah, because uh, you turned down a, a big deal with Virgin Records. From, um, at right? one point, yeah. It yeah. was a big deal at that time. Yeah. It's what I make for a show now. <laughs> See, well, I always talk to kids, younger kids, about betting on themselves. Yeah. And you took a really big gamble because at that time, and and I want to ask you if, if hip-hop is even constructed this way anymore, but what made you decide to bet on yourself? Because that's, you know, you were an artist, and that's what you live for is to be on a big label. Well, I just, I sensed when everybody decided they could be a rapper, you know, the public kind of started resenting rappers presenting other rappers, if that make any sense. You know what I'm saying? Like, when it got to feel like, all right, I got this deal, and now I know I can go pick up a quarter meal for each of my homies. I pick up an extra meal for myself, and I can put the homies on, right? I kind of got in, caught in the moment where that was happening, and crunk music was happening, which wasn't lyric-based. So I was just kind of like, oh, my God, what's going on? You know what I mean? I hadn't fully refined who I was. So it was just a lot in the mix that was cool, but it was kind of funky for a major label because a major label wants a radio hit. They want a song that's workable and they want to be able to sell you in terms of putting you on product. My name is Killer Mike. I'm a big black guy from Atlanta. I made a crunk hit record, but that's not the type of records I do. I actually am lyrical. And if you go to the Trap Museum, it's right there. First trap music ever was T.I. Trap Music. Second thing on the line is Killer Mike attempts to make the first conscious trap album. So it was just a circumstance. It's just you made money on the profit and loss sheet. We'll figure you out later. And I never wanted to feel like that again. After Columbia Records made me feel like that, which I have no ill will for, I'm just like, oh, I can't feel like I felt like a player who had worked my butt off to get in the league. And simply because the draft opportunity that was coming in, that wasn't promised, just the draft opportunity, I felt like I was going to lose a position. So I was just like, let me get out of town. Trade me. You know what I'm saying? And when another large company came and it felt like the same thing again, I was just like, you know what? I'm going to go play in China. They're going to pay me a whole bunch of money, wear my star bears, and give me two statues. I'm going to go. And I went independent. And I worked my butt off independently for years. And I partnered with LP. And we formed Run the Jewels. And this amazing phenomenon happened. Like, Man, we came back like cook crack. Like it was man, it was a new haul of notes. You know what I'm saying? We came, we and I and I'm and I'm happy. You know what I'm saying? I'm happy because I was nervous. I didn't know I was doing the right thing. I just knew instinctually it didn't feel right. You know, and, and the comeback was it feels a lot better than the setback. You mm -hmm. know, because I'm me. I'm totally Michael. I'm just Killer Mike. I get paid to be Killer Mike now. And I tell people my name is Michael Renter. You know what I'm saying? Whereas if you know, ten years ago I had an office of people telling me you can never be Killer Mike, and uh, two years. Later, the killers come out. You know what I'm saying? So it's just like, you know, 
It's, it's that I'm glad they were wrong. I'm glad I stood by my guns. I'm glad I went through the journey I went through, and I'm glad to be here. Yeah, authenticity will get you everywhere because yeah. um, when me and my former co-host, Mike, when we started uh, His and Hers, the producers used to tell us to stop making movie references. I mean, they used to try to encourage us not to. They couldn't really tell us shit, yeah. to be honest. But, like, they would say, you know, are you sure everybody's going to get that juice reference? Are you giving me any? Everybody hasn't watched it. And I was like, look, I watched Chris Berman. And half the shit that come out of his mouth, I don't even understand because yeah. he's making 70s references yeah. and 60s references. And it, but it wound up being our best commercial because then those movie references went from the, from just saying them on the show to us doing the Coming to America skit to us doing the Boys in the Hood skit. Still the only person in ESPN history to drink a 40 on, on, national, on national TV. But it came, you know, from a place of authenticity. And now you have every local newscaster doing a oh. Of that, do hip hop totally. record songs and talk like yeah. the whole. So absolutely, yeah. it's better to be the first. Yeah, oh yeah, it's better. And to, and to, just to be yourself. Yeah. But the way hip hop is now, it seems like I mean, you guys have dropped so much knowledge financially. Like, are the days kind of done of hip hop artists like waiting for that big record company? Because between like you and Chance and all, nah, these- it's, just, it's many paths to freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I meet you there, like. Nah, they're, they're, they're always going to be big stars on big companies. Absolutely they are. For every Kanye, you're going to have 10 Slim Thugs. You know, Kanye's a huge star, and, and there's no denying that brother's one of the biggest ever. He's amazing. He's discography. I just wish he would and, read a book, but yeah, that's besides yeah. the point. I just wish he would read it, a little yeah, more. That's love, all. You know, but, but Slim Thug is a brother who is independent, owns all his own masters, has done it his way. No one can tell him when and when not to go to work. Has an impressive business acumen in terms of owning everything from construction companies to real estate development. You know, still pops up on TV at will on my on Velocity TV, whatever I like. You know, so I, my thing is, I don't know if everybody gets to be a Kanye, but I know it's very possible to be a Slim Thug. Right. And I know that ten Slim Thugs in one area changes radically the economics of that area, because the then the Fat Burger gets owned by Nipsey Hussle and not by a guy who lives outside that area. So it's treated with a certain amount of care. The workers are treated with a certain amount of d- dignity. And that's all we got to focus on. Mm-hmm. We just got to focus on those things. And if it's like, when I leave here today, I'm going to vote. You know, I'm going to vote by our name. It's for District 3. You know, I worry about what's going on around me locally a lot more than when I go, what's, what's going on nationally. And I think financially I worry about that, too. So financially, let me, before I start worrying about how Trump is spending money or the governor is spending money or the mayor is spending money, let me worry about how I'm spending money in this household, how me and my wife are distributing our resources. And if I can master that, then I can help my cousin. and We can help the street and we can help the block and get bigger. But that's it. Since you uh, brought up politics, uh, is Bernie still your dude? Come on, you already know the OG. <laughs> get out of here, man. Bernie like still your guy? Oh, man, that's Kareem and Wooden right there. Okay. Know? Absolutely. I'm down right. with the OG. So um, I'm sure you probably weren't surprised he decided to go at it again. No, I was. Really? I asked him in the summer, you going to do it again? I'm like, I, I, I don't As- I like being at home. You know what I'm saying? You get an answer from that, you're like, what? <laughs> but I'm glad he did. Mm. I, don't, I, don't, I don't think Trump is beatable without him. I, don't, I think he's the only person that could potentially beat Trump. You know, and I think that, you know, whether he wins presidency or not, if you look at the Democrats four years ago, they were not a progressive party. They were more centrist. But if you look at it now, you look at minimum wage being a, a platform of his four years ago. Amazon have boosted their minimum wage up to $15. Does that happen without his campaign? Probably not because he didn't, didn't have a critical mass around it. Marijuana legalization nationalized is going to happen within our lifetime. That does not happen without him saying one of the first things I would do as president is decriminalize marijuana. Everybody, all of a sudden, Chuck Schumer being, went from a lifelong anti-marijuana guy to sitting on a board of a marijuana company, right? That doesn't happen. And, and when you talk about workers' rights and the eradication of poverty, I don't think I've really heard any candidate in my lifetime for president talk about that. You know what I'm saying? So for me, he progresses the conversation regardless. Whether he wins or not, America is going to become a more progressive nation, right? So you're not going to become a socialist nation. We're not going to become the old USSR, but you may have socialized medicine because of him. So what do you think outside of him of the other candidates? What do you think of Kamala Harris? I got to think about the win. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't waste time arguing personalities or Kamala Harris um, has grown into a progressive thinker in four years. You put that against someone who's been progressively thinking for 40 years, I have to go with the professor emeritus and not the professor. That's, it's, nothing, it's nothing past that. I don't have anything against her, Wang, or Booker, anyone else that's running. I'm just saying that I have a 50-year track record here. 
And I have to trust that because during the most unpopular times, this track record has stood. So I have to say that this is the most progressive voice and old people ain't got nothing to lose. <laughs> You know what I mean? you, I'm old. You know what I'm what I, got, I, I don't. What I got to lie for? I'm old. Interesting and I, approach. And I don't mean, you know, <laughs> if your grandparents gave you advice versus your parents, who'd you listen to? Probably my grandparents. My grandmother. Yeah, I listen to her a lot. Yeah. See, <laughs> that's uh, all in the black community. I'm saying, as we love our parents, don't get us wrong. Right. But we do know our parents was teenagers when they decided. But I to do also know my grandma wasn't right about everything. Either. I didn't say she was. Right. <laughs> okay. But she was honest about everything. She was. You don't have to be right to be honest. Mm-hmm. See, I need to know what you're honest, what you honestly feel and feel, because that gives me the ability. See, I know Bernie's earnest and honest in what he's saying. If you just got down with marijuana legalization in the last two years. I don't think you're honest. That's all. I think you're a liar. I think your friends smoked marijuana and that was fine. And you didn't mind because those were your friends. And my friends were going on to serve time for it. I think that at times that you were involved in policy and government, and this is for all politicians, you could have done measures. Had Vincent Ford, a Berniecrat, not ran in Atlanta, we would not have decriminalized marijuana now. Because Ford said the first thing he would do as mayor is decriminalize. Our city council, including our current mayor, who was at city council at that time, had all said, no, we got to wait till it goes state, wait till it goes federal, because the feds want to come here and lock up all black people. We don't want to, we have to, to, Man, that man pushed the line. And because he pushed the line before the election, in order to make sure those votes got secured for the Democratic Party, mostly Democratic City Council passed marijuana decriminalization for the first time in Atlanta. That happens as a direct result of the Bernie Sanders campaign. That happens as a direct result for 40 years of progressive thinking. Now, I love politicians. I helped my current mayor get elected. I'm with her on that. But I pushed the line. You got to push the line on any people you love because if you don't push the line, well, now what's a boxer without Freddie Roach? You can fight, but Freddie's going to push that line. He's going to make you a phenomenal fight. He's going to make you something else. Because every boxer's not motivated like Floyd. Every boxer ain't going to lead a club, come home at 3 in the morning, run those three miles. Mike Tyson knows that all too well. You get what I'm right? saying? So, yeah. So, so for me, it's just a matter of I have to trust that 40 over the four. So since you have the pulse of Atlanta, um, what's your take on Stacey Abrams? She won the hearts and minds of Georgians and let us know that we could once again become a blue state. She didn't win that election, and that's unfortunate. But the guy that's in office, Brian Kemp, is not a monster. He's a moderate Republican. He's someone that our community can negotiate with for the betterment of our community. Despite the fact he might be a cheater. No, despite the fact that the system is set up to cheat. Well, he liked to encourage that system to do that, and he wants to see that system continue. We had 100 years of Democratic governors and Democratic secretaries of state, and no one chose to change the system. See, as black people, at some point, we got to fall out of love with the personalities and, and say the system is broken. See, the system that allowed Joe Frank Harris to be governor, that allowed the same system allowed Sonny Perdue to be governor. Right? That system allows you to, as Secretary of State, oversee elections and run. So let's fix the system. Right. And then I ain't got to argue because on a political level, Stacey Abrams is not a radical leftist. And on a political level, Brian Kemp is not a radical to the right. They just aren't. They're more alike than apart. And it doesn't mean they're the same. It means that I feel like I can sit across from the table and negotiate terms on behalf of my community with both of those. I don't feel like either of them are so radical that it has dispelled the city of Atlanta into the abyss of poverty and crime that gets sold. That's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's not my job. After I fought the good fault for Stacey, all of us did. Me, Isaac Hayes, Chaka Zulu, T.I., many of us tried. The day after the election is over and we have a Republican governor, Brian Kemp, who is a moderate Republican, we have to, left with him to negotiate terms with. He has blacks in his cabinet. He has a very young black man over there working around marijuana and prison reform. I have to sit down with him and say, hey, on the behalf of my community, this is what we have. And, you know, quietly, Atlanta got a lot of black Republicans, too. Well, I've always said this, too. Um, especially to people who automatically label uh, black people as liberals. I was like, do you realize that most of us, as you did, your grandparents, I'm sure, were conservative. My mother's conservative. My grandmother, she was conservative. Like, black people are very conservative. Very conservative. All right? The reason why we don't fuck with y'all party is because y'all racist. Right? Yeah, okay. yeah. Or, or y'all let the racist speak for you. Or you let the racist, exactly. Yeah, or you, or you allow that to believe, overturn. Yeah, yeah, like bigotry, all of us harbor some prejudice and bigotry. But I think that the Republican Party can do and not only the Republican Party, the Libertarian Party and conservatives, period, could do a better job of having people in speaking roles that can get across those barriers. Before I interviewed Sanders, I, I asked to interview Rand Paul first. 
Iran agreed, and then for whatever reason, it didn't happen. Well, I mean, they they just have given up in terms yeah. of like trying to reach people of color. But with, you like don't they have just to. You they don't just have to. no, they don't have to concede that at all. And I don't think black people automatically want to vote Democrat. We what we but when left with no choice. Well, we left with no choice, and like no. a lot of times it boils down to that. I mean, I've been an independent for years. In Georgia, you can't be. Really? Now, in Georgia, you got to pick a party because they give you a card. You got to pick one. Yeah. I, the I could go on a whole rant about why we don't even need a two-party system anymore, but I'm going to save that for yeah. another, well, another, you, another what, what blacks could do, and I say blacks and the worker class because more than likely, black issues are tied to worker class issues. When I say black and worker class, just the audience out there, I'm talking about black people. And I'm talking about working class people, period, across the board, white, black, and different, Asian, Latin, right? What we could do a better job of is brokering our vote. We could decide what our agenda is, say this is our agenda, and who are the people that are coming before us, and whoever matches our agenda, you get our money and support. But if you don't, you don't get our money and support. We could be better organized. So was it Bobby Seale that said we're not outnumbered, we're organized? That's it. We could do a better job of organizing and letting less stuff fracture us. Like, I don't care who you love. I don't care if you're gay, straight. I don't care if you got here by boat or flow. No, I ma what matters to me is if our interests are the same in terms of advancing our individual constitution and human rights, then we're going to ally through this together. You know. So in 2020, who's our president going to be? If we get a chance to redo, I met Shana at Daytona Beach, right? She was a college girl. So was, I think she was first or second year in nursing school, so I met her and ate off her plate, styled on her. <laughs> and she decided she hated me. <laughs> And she never wanted. She didn't care who her friends were yelling for. I was a, I was a, I was an absolute male chauvinist pig. She never wanted to see me again. I saw her a year later at a party at Big Boy's house, and um, and when I saw her, I just was I was nudged off in a corner because I was dodging another girl in the party. But she saw me in a whole different light as a sweet and kind human being. I got a second shot, and since that day, I've never not let her know that I wanted her, I loved her, and I desired her, and I value her. And I think that. We have an opportunity in Bernie Sanders to, to have a redo, to have a do-over. You don't get that very often. That's why I've never let her out of my sight again. I think that we have an opportunity to vote him in as president, and we have an opportunity to see some of the things we've wished for happen, You know, not limited to a medical system that's available to all, not limited to the ending of a drug war that for the last 50 years has locked away so many men in our community in particular and robbed us of husbands, of fathers, of uncles, and proper role models. You know, not limited to those things. He has the closest thing I've seen to King's policy in terms of the end of his life in the beloved community and workers' rights. He has the closest policy. So for that, I'd like to see him. But that only happens if we come out in mass. If that does not happen and anyone else runs against Trump, I fear you're not going to beat Magneto. <laughs> you're trying to beat Magneto within everyone But else Magneto actually has some redeeming qualities. I can't really say that. What, Trump? <laughs> he has no redeeming no, Prison quality. reform. Absolutely. You know, I, and, I, and I'm not in the business of saying who I love, but... I got the calls that that brothers who were serving 80 percent of their time, it got knocked down to 65 and they might be coming home. So, you know, so, you know, I got to you know, there is no at the same time Obama was president. We were oh, dropping bombs. on look, I mean, and that's not this a slander. Is, this that's is just not to say to, our president is our yeah. president and they're going to do stuff you love. And they're going to do stuff you hate. But I can't say that there's no redeeming quality when that is passed, because I have seen Democratic presidents not do it including the two we love. We love Clinton, we love Obama. But I, well, Obama did. He started actually he the started way. It, yes. But with Clinton, I see we love him. He locked more of us up oh, than the slave ship. I mean, the, you know what I'm saying? The, so, the, the three strikes. Yeah, um, and, and, and he told, but what I loved about him is he told the truth. He said, your leaders asked me to do it. Right. Your leaders asked me to pass. So our leadership and our community should come back and say, we're sorry. Clinton definitely has at least admitted part of the pressure, and he should say, I'm sorry. And I have to give, and with that, I have to look at Crazy Orange Man and say, you know what, Crazy Orange Man, thank you for doing that, if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely, it, and it's, it's, it's just funny how in cycles certain things become, you know, more fashionable to do. Yeah. Because we went through that whole era of lock everybody up. Now it's a regular part of everybody's platform to talk about criminal justice reform as it is to talk about reparations. Yeah. Which I, I have to say, I'm pretty stunned that that has become such a popular campaign issue, at least one that they're asked all the time. Shouts out to John Connors, who, yeah. uh, you yep. know, former representative who's um, out of Michigan. Yep. That's and, like my former uh, representative. Yeah, and yeah. HR 40 is something he's been pushing since oh, 1989. My God. Yeah, for a long I've time. I've had an opportunity to talk to him on the phone personally. I'm going to go up, hopefully shake his hand and get to have a long conversation. But if this has been pushed with 89, 99, 2009, 19, that's 40 years. 
That's 40 years it's taken him to progress this bill. So regardless of what happens with reparations this election, it's taken us 40 years to get to this cows. As an African-American community, this should be on the top of our agenda for the next 100 years. Until until it's given is due, and we we need to determine what are the terms of reparations. Like I I'm scared of everybody getting a check tomorrow because <laughs> I know tax season. Oh, you know what I'm saying? Right. There's going to be so many Maseratis and Bugattis. Uh, but have you seen this new tax code? But I don't know but, about that. <laughs> my thing is, what do we get? Yeah. You know when. Dr. King died. Dr. King was asking for land. Elijah Muhammad and Marcus Garvey probably put together the most comprehensive things when Elijah Muhammad said, what Muslims want? We want our separate land. We want the United States government to support us um, for the works of our past for 20 years or until we are an independent. Like, it was very deep. And when you go back and look at the what Muslims want plan, you're like, wow, it's a political piece of paper that asks for specifics. So, you know, do I want us to, do I have to feel we deserve reparations? Absolutely. The American descendants of slaves absolutely deserve reparations. Do I know what we deserve and what it should be now? Absolutely not. Do I support H.R. 40, the investigation, too? Absolutely. Right. You know, can we refine, sharpen it up? That's fine with me. Has Sanders said he would actually sign that bill if become president? Absolutely he has. So my, my whole thing is like, hey, man, whether he's president or Trump's president or Forrest Gump's president, let's make this a real part of our agenda for the next 30, 40 years. My mother was an artist. So my mother has had gay friends and I've been around the gay community for most of my life. So it never bothered me. But I literally saw the difference in the way gay people were treated and ignored and left to die when AIDS was an epidemic in the 80s. I saw organizing and mobilizing happen in the 90s and it become a more common occurrence. You started to see people coming out of the closet proudly and that advocating for rights. And in my lifetime, I now see people like my uncles can actually marry. And when they die, they can leave something for their mate. That's an amazing 30-year protracted struggle, but we have to be prepared for that struggle. So absolutely, I'm prepared for that struggle. Yeah, you and think I, it'll happen in our lifetime? I think it can, because mm. Bobby Seale said you're not outnumbered. Yeah. Y'all organize. If we organize, if this isn't just political pornography in which we get to point at white people and say, I knew you weren't down with us. It doesn't happen. If we take it seriously and organize and structure it in a way that we had list our demands, we list the reasons why, and we apply the political pressure to make it happen, absolutely it does. So I got to send shots out, man. Like, I love the fact that whether you are comfortable with it or not, progress is happening. And I got to give some credit to Jim Brown. Because in all the all the forget Kanye's and Jim Brown was up there, Jim Brown has worked for 40, 50 years yeah, as with gang members, mm -hmm. as an activist, as an actual organizer around prison and drug reform. And in his lifetime. He's seeing it happen. So before we castigate each other, before we throw each other out for whatever the next word is or whoever we criticize. Cancel. I think that's the word that yeah, the kids use now. Cancel is becoming a cancer. <laughs> because if you if you look like me and I understand our struggles are the same, we might ride different buses to freedom, but the goal is to get there. And I'm not going to be in the business of criticizing, ostracizing, or critiquing, overly critiquing those who are in the same fight I am. So, you know, I want to just say publicly, you know, shouts out to people like Yvette Carnell. Shouts out to people like Claude Anderson. Shouts out to people like Boyce Watkins. Shouts out to people like Tariq Nasheed that are pushing that line. Shouts out to people like Nina Turner, who's the co-chair of, of Bernie Sanders' campaign, pushing that line. But same, same goal of freedom, different shouts out to Nipsey Hussle, shouts out to David Banner, shouts out to T.I., to Mike Song, to Mano. Shouts out to these people that are pushing that line. Shouts out to the black Republicans in Atlanta. They won't tell you they're black Republicans, but they're putting money into the political process and the economic ecosystem here to push that line, you know. You know, Mike, I, I give you a lot of credit. The only thing that bothers me is when people want to engage in the fight and they don't have the tools to do it in terms of the knowledge and the education, right? That uninformed fighters to yeah, me yeah, yeah, are yeah, yeah. a waste of time. Yes, yeah, like okay? having no training. You know what I'm absolutely, saying? It's like uninformed fighters absolutely. are a waste of time. And it, as everybody isn't equipped to use their voice in a way that's as constructive as the way you use it. And I'd rather you be quiet because yeah, you yeah. will undermine the rest of what yeah, we're trying absolutely, to do. Absolutely. And so while, you know, that's why I said, like, I, I told people all the time about Kanye is like, I'm not here to cancel Kanye. I want Kanye to read. Yeah. That's what I want him to do. Yeah, I, I want him it. to read. That's okay. it. Like, pick up a book, dude, before you join this fight. Yeah, because you can wind up saying something that really does set the course of progress back. God bless the dead. Dick Gregory had a wonderful quote that my grandfather often said to me. Stay out of white folk business. <laughs> uh, I slightly lied to you when I said uh, I was getting ready to get you to go. I, one more small segment to do. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. Uh, Listen, a, you don't, I love you. Uh, you got to understand, man. <laughs> two years I tweet, I retweeted. She went talk to This me. is my way of rectifying that. Right, I was like, I'm, I'm going to spend you. a whole hour and, and some you change. you like my wife cousin. 
<laughs> really? Yeah, I'm so, saying you and Shay really could go for cut. All right. I'll, I'll accept that because I think your wife is amazing. All right. One more small segment to go. Okay. Uh, that's right, everybody. Fuck it. I'm bothered is next. Yeah. So we like to close every show, uh, Mike, with a, a segment we call Fuck It, I'm Bothered. Yeah. And basically, you know, the title of the podcast, as you know, is Jamel Hill is unbothered. Unbothered, as I tell people, does not mean not being passionate. It means that you have run out of fucks to give, yeah. right? And that you, much like our grandparents before us, you've reached that stage where you don't care what people think about what you have to say. You're going to tell them the truth as it needs to be. Yeah. I'll start it off. And if you have one, great. All right. Because this does apply to your home state, Georgia. Okay, gotcha. All right. So uh, if you have one, feel free to contribute. If not, just you can comment on whatever it is I said. Yeah. Fuck it, I'm bothered that in 2019, the U.S. Board of Geographic Names voted to finally rename this mile and a half creek near Skidway Island, which is uh, Savannah. Oh, Skidway. Right? I know you're like, oh, all right, who gives a shit? It's a creek. No, but my wife's from there. It matters to me. Really? Yeah, okay. She's from Savannah and her family's from Hilton. And- I don't know if she heard of this creek, but the creek was called Runaway Negro Creek. Uh-huh. That was this actual name. Yeah. 2019, they're just now changing this. Okay. Okay? <laughs> I mean... As soon as this application came across, it should have been. It took two years, by the way, for them to actually rename this creek. It's now called Freedom Creek. Okay. So, when that application came across the desk, Runaway Negro Creek. Yeah. I'm thinking that should have been rubber stamp. I'm thinking that should have been fast track. I and disagree. It ta- I, what? Yeah, Runaway I'm Negro bothered Creek. You bothered. I disagree. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because Freedom Creek, you know what Freedom Freedom Creek is? Some beige of uh, just ambiguous. What's that? Freedom Creek. That's freedom. That that's where that's where freedom is found, right? You would have preferred it to be called Runaway Negro. In fact, runaway niggas. Nigga, you wanna run this way you're running. Because that implies I don't agree to slavery. I don't agree with you. No, I'm not your goddamn property. The minute your white ass go to sleep, I'ma poison your baby, I'ma kill your wife, and I'ma run my ass through that goddamn creek. Now you see how shocked she looked when she opened her eyes? But see, because we've never done a real study in slavery, we don't know that's what happened. See, we think all we did was get beat and bit and fold. That's not what happened. No. And there were plantations where the master knew where everybody needs to get fed, or this babysitter gonna put glass in my child's grits. You know, and, and, and so runaway Negro quick implies that I do not agree to slavery, contrary to what Kanye said. So you see the empowerment. Nigga, I'm running. <laughs> I'm running. Fuck you. So, nigga, we going tonight. Now, it'd be different if you say, well, we named it Harriet Tubman Creek. You know what I'm saying? We named it. Yeah, but you named Freedom. It's a Freedom Parkway. What Freedom mean? Freedom, fuck that. Runaway Negro Creek. I'm out this bitch. The night. Massa gone. I'm out too. He went to see his other girlfriend. I got to go. Harriet Tubman was a guerrilla warrior. She was not somebody who just popped up on Sundays. Hey, really? Oh, no. I'm a Southerner. You know, so a lot of stuff that y'all get offended by don't offend me because I'm empowered by, like, regardless of what you say, Negroes ran away. And so freedom giving it, oh, this is, this is free. This is, I killed my master land. And where, where is that? Now? That's what I want to know. Where's the, oh, we killed some Crackers Creek. This segment is not how I saw this going. But that's how it's going. <laughs> Yeah, damn right. That says empowerment. I fought back. Hell, you talking about? <laughs> Ain't no victims. It's a, so, so, so we fought back. You are victimized. Women. Some women have some women be victimized through rape, through hurt, through torture. And you got some women. Something clicks. You fuck around in the more tie class. They just like I'm a survivor. I'm not going to ever be victim. You know what I mean? That is black people. Yes, we have been used. We've been abused. We've been products. We've been thrown away. But to run away Negro Creek implies that they knew. Hey man, they not gonna stay. This just proves what a incredible, thoughtful individual you are. Because you may have successfully convinced me to take back my fucking Ambada I'm going to go and, get, and ride for Runaway Negro Queek. I'm me a Runaway Negro Queek shirt made. Watch <laughs> me. By Kruvy Clothing, who made this shirt. Shouts out to Kruvy. Runaway Negro Creek coming soon. Believe that. No bullshit. <laughs> Shouts out to Skidaway Island, Seaport, West Savannah, Yamacraw. Yeah.
Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify. And Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. 